Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, I've got good news for you. It's not all bad today, but there's also no good martinis. It's all crazy today, and boy, did we have a selection of crazies that was actually pretty difficult to choose from today. There's a lot of craziness in the world, and certainly in the world of politics. We're brought to you today by Upstart. That's good news. Find out how you can lower your monthly payments with Upstart, upstart.com slash martini. More on them a little bit later. Jim, let's start with crazy martini number one. The media, by and large, mainstream media especially, really in love with themselves. They think they are just on the front edge of saving the Constitution, what they do every day, which does matter. Freedom of the press is critically important. But they honestly think they're like members of the military. And now it's not just uh, a tweet here and there. It's an actual story from a guy who writes for Yahoo News. It's a tough name, Alexander Nazarian. I hope that's right. But he's writing here for The Atlantic. And he talks about how some Donald Trump supporters referred to uh, people in the press corps as the Lugenpresse, which is the German word for press who are insufficiently flattering or something. But he goes on to talk about how it was just a a thrill uh, to be covering the Trump administration. You didn't know which facts uh, were accurate or what to make of any given statement. It was just this amazing ride, and now it's over. And this paragraph is just insane. Covering the administration was thrilling for many journalists in the way that I imagine storming Omaha Beach must have been for a 20-year-old fresh from the plains of Kansas. He hadn't signed up for battle, but there he was, liberating France. France, by the way, is where Trump called American soldiers who'd fallen in combat suckers and losers. When this magazine first reported those comments, Trump supporters denounced the Atlantic story as preposterous and offensive. Even as outlet after outlet confirmed the reporting, they failed to realize that the preposterous and the offensive were the twin beacons of the Trump presidency. Journalists were merely going where he led. This was our Omaha Beach. I, for one, would have rather been in Hawaii. Okay, first of all, the suckers and losers uh, story was denounced publicly on the record by everyone who was willing to go on the record. Only anonymous people refused to uh, or, or backed up that story. Jim, I get to interview veterans all the time. It's one of the great parts of my job. And I've interviewed uh, veterans from Omaha Beach. And I can tell you, no matter what you've been through, unless you covered war at Omaha Beach or some other brutal location, your job is nothing like that. And to make that comparison is disgusting. Yeah, I think the lesson of the day between this essay in The Atlantic, where I don't think Nazarian or whatever his name is, is going to end up getting canned from The Atlantic, you know, he's not a Kevin Williamson type. You know, he's not crazy <laughs> or dangerous or anything like that. You know, he'll he'll probably still have a job. But between, you know, him and, say, Gina Carano, I think the lesson of the day is don't compare yourself to anyone in World War II. Because whatever you're doing, there's a very few of us who can even remotely compare what we're doing to World War II. And I would say to just about any journalist who is not getting literally shot at, do not compare yourself to storming Omaha Beach. You can be proud of the work you do. I was thinking about, I was, I was trying to think about like what work I've done that I'm most proud of. And over on, I, I, you know, my, I'm enough of a narcissist to have my little wall of plaques and things I've won and all that kind of stuff. A bobblehead doll of Ed Meese that the Heritage Foundation gave me uh, for speaking a, a couple of years ago. 
my big timeline of China's COVID lies, where I went through and found every single day that the Wuhan Health Commission insisted the virus was not uh, contagious. Um, huge amount of traffic, biggest trafficked item I did last year, ton of work. Uh, that one in the trail leading back to Wuhan, I'm very proud of that work. But never in a million years would I compare myself to Omaha Beach or, or anybody who's been under fire for this country, or even anybody who's worn the uniform of this country. If you go to serve in a military base, there's probably some Yahoo out there who's trying to blow you up. Most days, as far as I know, nobody's trying to blow me up. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still sitting here. There's no particular danger to me um, other than perhaps, you know, like cholesterol or something like that. So um, it is kind of ludicrously over the top. But I think one of the things we can take from this, and I think that is kind of like if people say, oh, the media is broken, it, 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 you know, it, in, a, in a deep and fundamental way. Greg, I think the fact, you know, the fact that this guy has now gotten the entire world to start talking about his essay and how ludicrously narcissistic he is in his assessment of his work during the Trump years is that coherent arguments don't drive traffic. They don't get rewarded by the audience. The irony is that inane and asinine arguments, they do get rewarded with traffic, in part because everybody's linking to this and saying, oh, my God, can you believe this guy? Look at what this idiot said. But also, I suspect there are some people who are like, because the right is saying this is an idiotic case of media narcissism. I think there are a whole bunch of other folks on the left are like, well, I have to go and read that. I have to defend this. How dare these people attack the criticism or something? And I'm left wondering, where are the editors at The Atlantic to look at that passage and not say, all right, Alex, you want to take a second crack at this. This is you really want to avoid the comparison of yourself to anything that reminds people of Band of Brothers, anything that reminds people of Saving Private Ryan. You sat at your keyboard and typed. It's not the same thing. It's not uh, it's not comparable. But those editors aren't there. I'm guessing because they're hiding under the desk because they learned the lesson of Kevin Williamson. <laughs> I guess so. Jim this goes to something deeper, though, and we've talked about this in the past. I don't think it's exclusive to members of the media. But uh, when you insist that you are the story, essentially, uh, or at least part of the story, instead of the person who's covering the story or chronicles the story, when you constantly make yourself essentially the hero of the story, you're comparing yourself to a soldier on Omaha Beach, you're making yourself the hero of the story here. And it's I don't know if this is about... Uh, how parents more recently perhaps have uh, tried to convince their kids that they're heroes and that they're awesome at what they do, no matter what the results, or just this inflated ego that comes along with being around politics many times. How did we get to this point where people who no one's even heard of are comparing themselves to war heroes? Greg, I can answer that question. It's Robert Redford's fault. <laughs> and you're probably wondering, Okay. And yeah, so Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah. Uh, all the presidents met. You know, they, they Carl, you know, uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Uh, the work they did in, in Watergate was indisputably important and consequential. But there are not a lot of things in life where you can do, and Robert Redford will play you handsomely as the hero in the movie. Um, to do that, you gotta, you know, generally either uncover some terrible conspiracy. Uh, or make up memos about George W. Bush. You know, that, that's the kind of stuff you have to do to get Robert Redford to play you in the movie. So it, it created this narrative. It created this almost mythology around journalism that if you're a really, really good journalist, you take down and force a, a Republican official from office. Your job is not merely to cover and tell people what's going on in the political arena. Your job is to influence the political arena and that you have something akin to police powers. Your job is to take bad people out of office. 
by exposing their wrongdoing. And the good people in office, well, then you make excuses for them or you hand wave it or you, you know, put it back on page A9, you know, like Bill Clinton or something like that. Um, I, I mean, in, I think you know, the great irony is at the heart of this, I think this is almost like the, you know, everybody's looking for, for meaningful work, right? To understand that they are consequential. And one of the great ironies is, is like nobody goes to a sports arena to watch the sports writers work, right? Nobody goes to Hollywood because they really uh, pays attention to Hollywood because they really are curious about what the writers for Variety are saying or doing, right? There are people who are doing things and there are people who are writing about what other people are doing or covering it. And that's not quite, a, you're, you're adjacent to the famous and the accomplished, but you're not among the famous and the accomplished. And there's, uh, David Brooks had this great essay, I think it was back in the Weekly Standard days, where he talked about status income disequilibrium. In other words, it's when you have a great deal of cultural power, as a great deal of members of the media do, but you don't have the income of all the people you're covering, whether it's in finance, whether it's in Hollywood, whether it's in politics or something like that. I think that, you know, that, that if you don't have, if you're not a uh, Jeff Bezos, if you're not a Bill Gates, if you're not on the scale of these big, powerful people, then you start to believe that you want to find some way to believe that you are every bit as consequential. And thus, you have to start writing essays about yourself in which you compare yourself to those storming uh, Omaha Beach. It's not the case. It's a dangerous mythology. I think it's a huge factor in why people don't trust the media. Uh, and also, I think it ends up skewing our perception of things. It skews our understanding of these uh, of what's going on. The great irony is, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, there's been a ton of stuff to cover that people don't know about. People want to know about these things. Uh, more about you know the virus and the medication and what can they do to avoid it and if they do get it what are the odds of getting through it and how are the hospitals doing like there's a huge story to be told and some people don't want to tell this because they spent an entire you know not just one year but many years of their lives dedicated to this notion I need to explain to my audience that Donald Trump is bad surprise your audience already has opinions on Donald Trump Anyway, I, I should get off my soapbox at this point, Greg. <laughs> now, I think in some cases it's almost a borderline mental illness. It's really frightening that these people take themselves that seriously and elevate themselves like that. Well, you mentioned all the president's men, and speaking of journalists, you know, Hal Holbrook, uh, the actor that uh, portrayed Deep Throat, who we later found out was uh, Mark Felt, died recently. He was also well known for being a Mark Twain uh, impressionist or actor. New York Post, uh, with a very unfortunate headline after he died, Jim, I don't know if you saw this, Hal Holbrook, Deep Throat and Mark Twain actor, dead at 95. Um, because Deep Throat is also the title of another movie, and Hal Holbrook, I'm quite sure, was not <laughs> in that movie. So I was, I was going to say, Greg, that uh, I've always hoped, before we knew that it was Mark Felt, that Deep Throat would turn out to be Hal Holbrook. <laughs> was there all along, but no, no, it turned out to be myself. Wow. Well, um, whether you're a self-inflated reporter or uh, just somebody who needs some help getting your finances in order, I've got good news for you. Uh, if you have multiple credit cards, uh, you know that tracking multiple balances, due dates, website logins, it's stressful. And the worst part is you don't need to do that. You don't need all those headaches trying to keep track of everything. Upstart makes things simple with one monthly payment in one place. Upstart is the fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off your debt all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, more than half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Upstart finds smarter rates with trusted partners because they assess more than just your credit score. 
With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans from $1,000 to $50,000. And you can get approved the same day and receive funds as fast as one business day. If debt is taking over your life, it's time to get a fresh start with Upstart. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com martini. That's upstart.com slash martini. And don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash martini. All right. I don't think the Lincoln Project guys are going to need Upstart anytime soon, although they seem to be piling up a lot of debt until they got filthy rich off their recent grift, Jim. In case you couldn't tell, we're headed to our second crazy martini now. And uh, the revelations about the Lincoln Project are coming out more and more. This is from the Associated Press now, which I guess is another legitimate uh, outlet, meaning that uh, the Lincoln Project has to respond. Rick Wilson has already called it a Trump hit job. Uh, from the Associated Press, mind you. Uh, so basically the major... Rev- we, we all know those Trump fans <laughs> over at the Associated Press. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so basically it's a long piece uh, kind of going through uh, the Lincoln Project. But the two major revelations here, Jim, are number one, that uh, folks at the Lincoln Project knew as early as last summer about the allegations against John Weaver, which Steve Schmidt and Rick Wilson have said very recently uh, they knew nothing about until just around the time the New York Times reported on this towards the end of January. Uh, so this was uh, circulating at least to some folks at the Lincoln Project way back in the summer. And uh, then the other thing, of course, which we've talked about a lot, is that the Lincoln Project has raised a lot of money and they've pocketed a lot of money. Uh, my favorite one, of course, is uh, Steve Schmidt. Uh, purchasing a $1.4 million mountain modern custom home in Utah with five bedrooms, seven baths, and a stunning view of the mountains. Uh, he's now trying to sell it for $2.9 million. Also, uh, Weaver apparently paid off over $300,000 in back taxes that he owed to the IRS, and he still apparently owes more than $300,000 on a failed family business, unrelated to campaign consulting. So, uh, Jim, the more that comes out, the more spinning the Lincoln Project's doing here. And so far, their denials have not been super credible. Greg, I feel a, a, a obligation to point out that the family business you referred to was a children's boutique. Yes. Which has really unfortunate implications in light of the other things we know about Weaver. Now, look, you know, if Rick Wilson wants to say this is a hit piece, it is a piece that is indeed hitting them very, very hard and not just over the John Weaver stuff, which is really appalling. And the idea that, you know, what did they know and when did they know it? And the indications that they knew this for quite some time before they did anything about it. Um, but the part that jumped out at me and well, okay, it didn't jump out at me. There's a lot that could jump out. But the, the, I, I was kind of pleased that the Associated Press took the time to go through and do the math and to recognize since its creation, the Lincoln Project has raised $90 million dollars but only about a third of that money directly paid for advertisements they aired on broadcasting cable. And by the way, those of us with, with memories going back to, you know, last year will recognize they would run their ads on Washington, D.C. area during Fox News. And then Trump would get see it and get angry about it and he'd tweet about it. But they were not running them in like Ohio or Florida or swing states like that. You know, those markets are expensive, Greg. You know, you don't <laughs> want to waste your money on that. No, no, you want to put it someplace where Trump's going to see it and respond to it. Um, but anyway, so the other thing is that leaves, t- is a, the, the AP says, that leaves tens of millions of dollars that went toward expenses like production costs. Again, this is all file footage. Why, well, how much of a expensive cost? You know, like you can do this sort of thing on like 
basic home software, overhead, and exorbitant consulting fees collected by members of the group. Associated Press's words, not mine. I'm glad that word exorbitant got in there. There's a quote from Brendan uh, Fisher, an attorney with the Nonpartisan Campaign Legal Center. It says, look, it raises questions about where the rest of the money ultimately went. Generally speaking, you'd expect to see a major super PAC spend a majority or more of their money on advertisements, and that's not what happened here. Look, from very early on, people have been calling the Lincoln Project a grift. You could argue about how fair it was. They're convinced that their ads were super duper effective. I think they were effective in spurring angry reactions from Trump. I don't think they were effective in changing people's minds. In fact, a couple of focus groups indicated that they worked the other way. People would see the ads and are more supportive of Trump than they did before they saw the ads. Um, and so this was a, a, if you're conservative, this is a group that has managed to separate a lot of liberals from a lot of money to send it off them to put them on ads that were not that effective. Maybe it's some, on some level you're like, hmm, good. But nonetheless, if we don't like grift in general, it is good that the Associated Press is running this hard-hitting piece on uh, the Lincoln Project. I think they should be accountable for all the money they took. And I would argue that Democrats probably ought to be uh, a little more discerning or skeptical about where they send their money. I mean, you know, I'm a little less concerned about them getting grifted than anybody else. But again, like if you're if you're upset by um, you know, if you if you want your money when you give a political donation to be effective, you want it to have an impact, and that's really not the case with this. And with all these guys cashing in and making huge amounts of money, it's kind of like what we've always kind of suspected that you know Rick Wilson and Steve Schmidt and a bunch of these other guys had burned their bridges with most of the rest of the Republican Party. That you know that it wasn't merely that they disagreed with Trump or criticized Trump, but they were so vehemently and totality and you know full spectrum opposed to trump they had made themselves unemployable within the republican party so they turned to this and democratic donors were more than happy to throw lots and lots of money at them and i think everybody involved has to ask themselves what were we paying for this whole time <laughs> well thankfully it's not we it's them but uh yeah they uh don't have 63 million dollars to to show for it, I guess uh, some of that was uh, paid on production costs and so forth. But it says, what does it say here? Twenty-seven million went to a firm controlled by Reed Galen, who is another one of the founders. Twenty-one million paid to a firm run by former Lincoln Project member Ron Steslow. And so, uh, I mean, Jim, as this whole thing went out, you mentioned that he that they bought time in D.C. so Trump could see it. They got played for free on Morning Joe pretty much every time they came out with a new ad because they had a, a permanent residence there. The thing that I always was struck by was just how bad and how juvenile they were. I don't know if they were trying to uh, attack Trump in a way that they just thought would make him the most annoyed. I kind of saw it, and this is probably going to make Rick Wilson real happy, as kind of having the same personality sometimes as Trump, only they just sucked at it. It kind of reminds me of Seinfeld where Jerry and George were talking, and George is like, so Jerry, how do you see yourself? And Jerry's like, I see myself a lot like you, only successful. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, that uh, Rick Wilson kind of sees himself as kind of the pugilist, the guy who gets down in the, in the dirt, who can, who can mud wrestle, except that Trump was way better at it than him, and it's got to gall him. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, a couple of the reviews of Wilson's book would point out that he had two big themes. One was that Donald Trump had needlessly divided America with all of these wedge issues and he turned Americans against each other. That'd be the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book would be the Trump voters were these inbred, toothless, backwater hicks who are <laughs> shooting themselves with guns and high on heroin. And, you know, that, that Rick Wilson would then exhibit all of the traits in Trump he had spent the first part of the book denouncing. And he didn't see it. And my, my sneaking suspicion is, is that... Um, 
I mean, back in the day, I used to know Rick Wilson, used to, you know, talk to him for stories. I, I thought reasonably well of him back in, like, the Tea Party era. I think he just decided, like, this is certain avenues of, of working in politics were closed off from him. So he'd go in a different direction. Principles had nothing to do with it. Original beliefs had nothing to do with it. And it, in the end, he will be, he, he's, you know, chameleon-like. He will adapt to whatever... Um, brings in the fees and that being a you know furious over the top james carville-esque right pugnacious uh, voice from the left making fun of trump voters with don lemon on cnn prime time that's what brought in the donations so that's what he's going to be and most of us like most of us just aren't either aren't that adaptable or just don't want to be that adaptable that's why some of us believe what we believed five years ago ten years ago and even further back, even further back Hey guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a comment or review and subscribe all right let's talk about our final crazy martini now and uh joe biden had a call last night i guess with xi jinping the head of china and jim bloomberg among others uh reporting that uh, they spoke for about two hours they apparently got into everything from china cheating on its currency to the treatment of the uyghurs uh crackdown on hong kong the latest moves near and uh, around Taiwan. Uh, Xi Jinping apparently telling Biden that uh, that's uh, Chinese business. And the U.S. should tread carefully there. But uh, in uh, describing uh, the concerns about China, uh, this is what Bloomberg says. Biden said he spoke with Chinese President Xi Jinping for about two hours in a call on Wednesday. Quote, if we don't get moving, they're going to eat our lunch, he told reporters in the Oval Office, describing Chinese plans to invest billions of dollars in rail projects automobile manufacturing, and environmental improvements. It used to be that infrastructure wasn't a Democratic or Republican issue. We're going to see what we can put together. So, Jim, if that sounds familiar, where he says, if we don't get moving, they're going to eat our lunch, it's because he said the exact opposite on the campaign trail. He said, China's going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. They're not bad folks, folks. They're not competition for us. Now, he probably doesn't remember saying that, but uh, this is quite the contrast just a couple years later. Yeah, uh, and interesting in terms of the uh, use of the term, you know, they're not competition for us. Uh, now he's calling China the most serious competitor to the United States. So on the one hand, I'm glad, you know, Biden has woken up and, you know, at least temporarily smelled the coffee. Uh, the third item in today's jolt kind of goes through the early moves of the Biden administration on China. They're not all terrible. Um, you, you described the, the phone call there. Uh, so far, at least, they're keeping the the Trump administration's approach to uh, Taiwan, uh, although there are a couple of rumblings that that might change. Probably the most significant one was two couple of days ago, the Theodore Roosevelt and Nimitz aircraft carrier strike groups did a military exercise in the South China Sea. It's kind of Teddy Roosevelt speak softly and carry a big stick. We're going to demonstrate our, you know, our military is operating in your neighborhood. You better not, uh, you know, get frisky, so to speak. But there's a bunch of things the Biden team is doing that aren't good and don't strike us particularly soft on, particularly tough on China. In fact, they seem kind of soft. I was kind of baffled yesterday when he said he's going to have the Pentagon review, quote, the national security aspects of their China strategy and that this report will be due in summer. 
Greg, didn't this guy spend a year telling us he was ready from day one? <laughs> right. Right. Like, like, what do you what what do you need to review? What like what? I, I thought you were ready for this. I thought you were ready to jump in there and start changing policy to really get tough on China instead of Trump being terrible. And by the way, Trump made all kinds of errors with China. I didn't like his comments on the Uyghurs. His opposition to Trump, to China was almost entirely focused in the trade arena. Uh, and didn't focus on a bunch of other stuff. But, you know, like, for example, you look at TikTok. Uh, they're dropping the Trump administration's attempts to restrict TikTok. They've at least temporarily halted the sale of TikTok from a Chinese company to an American one. And the one that seems most baffling is right towards the end, the Trump administration instituted a rule that was going to require American schools and universities to disclose partnerships with these Chinese, you know, state-run Confucius institutes and classrooms that they argue are basically backdoor ways to get Chinese propaganda in American universities. Biden campaign just, you know, pulled that back. And in an interview, I believe it was with Savannah Guthrie, where Biden says to about regarding Xi Jinping, I've said to him all along that we need not have a conflict. This does not seem like a guy who is, you know, Biden does not always come across as a guy who's really eager to show China that they can't push us around. Glad that he did this tougher line in the phone call. We're not going to get a recording of it. We're not going to get specifics, but they said he took a tougher line. But I don't, you know, China doesn't worry that much about U.S. officials saying tough things about them. Policy decisions are the ones that really are, are the that. My sneaking suspicion is that Biden, who's always been a fairly pro-China voice in, in Capitol Hill, uh, pro-China guy back during the, the, the Obama years, I think he thinks, oh, well, I'm going to do a version of the carrot and the stick. And the question is, what happens when China says, OK, we'll take that carrot and we're just going to ignore that stick? And, you know, does, does Biden have the stomach? Does he have the, the willingness to get into a, a tougher fight with China? I don't know. It's open. It's, it's still unresolved here. But this whole idea of, oh, now he's worried that they're going to eat, going to eat our lunch. You know, Mr. President, this is what some of us have been saying for years and years. And you were scoffing at us two years ago. Joe Biden is, uh, like we said, he's a guy who's kind of drifting wherever the, the party is on a given issue. Uh, I've seen uh, analyses of his picks, particularly on his foreign policy team, that everybody he's chosen is essentially a conventional liberal uh, viewpoint. Uh, there, there's no real original thinkers in this administration. And so I'd be curious to see whether they actually do have the fortitude to to really challenge China or Iran or anybody else uh, in ways that are different uh, than what happened during the Obama years and, and, and other times. Anyway, Jim, that's a lot of craziness Friday, for one day. Right, uh, tomorrow is. Tomorrow is. So uh, again, hope springs eternal for a good martini. Didn't get one today, but we got a lot of crazies. Jim, have a good one. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our friends over at Upstart, upstart.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We are very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.